From BYU Broadcasting's Performance Studio, this is Highway 89. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I'm so happy you joined us for this edition of Highway 89, and you're going to be very happy you listened as well. We're celebrating the 50th anniversary performance of Salt Lake's Repertory Dance Theater by bringing in a wonderful pianist, Vasily Primakov. He's come to play for the performance in addition to or accompanying the dancers. But we are very pleased to be able to bring you some wonderful performances today with him solo. He performs in concert halls all over the U.S. and internationally from South Africa to Europe. He's recorded many albums, nearly as nearly 20 as far as we could count. Solo albums, others with concertos, the Odense Symphony Orchestra, Norwegian Radio Orchestra. He was born in Moscow and studied at the Central Special Music School when he was 11, arrived in the U.S. as a 17-year-old who spoke no English. He came to study at the Juilliard School and after a short time at the Music Academy of the West in Santa Barbara, he earned both bachelor and master's degrees from Juilliard. Second prize at the Cleveland International Piano Competition, semi-finalist in the Van Cliburn Competition, we'll talk about that, and a silver medalist of the Gina Bachauer International Piano Competition here in Salt Lake City. Let's start with music. This is from Franz Schubert. We'll hear all four movements of his wanderer fantasy, Opus 15. Thank you. 
Fantasy in C major, opus 15. That's music by Franz Schubert, known as the Wanderer Fantasy, coming to its thunderous conclusion after a fugue section, after the adagio. We have just heard our guest today, Vasily Primakov, do the nearly impossible. <laughs> Vasily, thank you. We'll let you catch your breath here for a moment. Yes, thank you. feel like you've just been running around the track. Well, yeah, especially your piano is beautiful, but it's um, heavy action, so, you know, it's <laughs> twice as hard. <laughs> I wanted to ask, this is such a difficult piece. Uh, I mean, Franz Schubert himself was said to have said, the devil may play it, meaning yes. I can't really play it, but somebody maybe. And here you've done it for us today. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's an, uh, the reason I picked it out uh, for you guys today, it's actually, um, well, the story is simple. About uh, well, a few years ago, in 2002, I was competing with it in uh, Salt Lake City at the Gina Bacala. Uh-huh. was one of my pieces and back then I practiced it like crazy sort of like a maniac and uh, I, I really loved it to begin with I, I chose to play that piece because I really loved it musically but then after sort of the competition process was over I actually stopped playing it and I haven't played it well now it's more than 10 years it's like 12 13 years 
And now I got back to it with a you know sort of different agenda because I realized that I kind of missed it. I, I really wanted to play it because music is gorgeous. Yes, it's extremely hard. I'm still trying to catch my breath. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I, I think it's worth it. You know, it's, uh, it's just such a joyous piece, especially if you think of Schubert. And it's one of his early compositions where I think he's so full of energy and hope and just joy and uh, it's fun. Well, you can find an album of impromptus and dances by Franz Schubert by Vasily Primikov at his website, vasiliprimikov.net. We want to be sure people know about that. You knew what you were getting into at a very young age. I mean, you weren't just taking piano because music was cool, but you had the idea from a very early age to be a professional musician. Yeah, I, I consider myself very lucky that way because... The actual quote we got from you was, I have nobody to blame but myself. <laughs> yes, yeah, I, you know, and I stand by it because uh, uh, the reason I say I'm lucky is because, you know, I see a lot of musicians around me, my colleagues, who were, I, I don't want to say the the word forced, but they were sort of born into becoming a musician because they're from a musical family. And I'm not saying that I'm not, my mom was a pianist, so... Uh, Obviously, I grew up surrounded by classical music. However, my mom was not really keen on the idea of making me a classical musician. So when people ask me, for example, when did I start playing, technically it's eight years old. I, I want to say closer to eight, like seven and a half. But the difference is I was the one who approached my mother and I said, I want to play piano. Uh, and I really, I was very firm in that. You see, it was like really my decision. And I kind of right away envisioned myself that I would just sort of drown myself in the, in the world of classical music and practice. And I never complained when I had to practice hard and like for a few hours because, again, I made that choice. So was she hesitant because she knew what the life of a musician could be? Yes, yes, absolutely. Because it's very hard, you know, it's very hard for musicians. And I think... Well, as a mother, I, I don't think she wanted me to, you know, to to go through all those struggles and, uh, I don't know, ups and downs, I guess you would call it. Um, but once she realized that I was determined, she was, of course, extremely helpful uh, in my upbringing, my musical upbringing. So we, we read that when she was trying to find a teacher for you, she didn't tell people that she herself was a teacher. Why was that? Well, you know, it's very interesting. It's an interesting lie because uh, uh, the first school I have ever uh, gone to, my mom took me there and there was a wonderful uh, music teacher. So uh, she started me sort of my f officially first teacher, even though my mom, of course, gave me lessons before. So my mom obviously told her that she taught at the Gnesian Institute and she herself was a pianist. And the reaction was... Um, kind of like, oh, since the mother is the pianist, she'll do all the dirty work, and I'll probably do very little. Mm. So my mom was very upset about it, uh, because she realized that the teachers were expecting her to do most of the work. Mm. So my next teacher, uh, she, I, I don't think it was an easy decision for her, honestly, but she basically decided that she's not going to say that she's a musician, you know, and so she, she didn't, you know, she just said, well, I'm just a mom. And maybe that's good for family relations, too, to have somebody else be your teacher. Yeah, yeah. And it actually, it, you know, it worked like a charm. My next teacher was very, uh, I still remember it, it was, was wonderful working with her. And she, she was very determined to get me going. Well, you have such an interesting life with ebbs and flows because you'll have periods where you're relaxing, you're practicing. And then uh, we read about a recent time when you had 15 concerts in 30 days. Yeah. So it's all on, all off, feast or famine, is that? Yeah, it's it's pretty much always like that. You know, it's either there's a lot or that there's nothing. When people ask me, like, what's your schedule like? And I always say it's very chaotic because things come, like concerts come sort of in packs, I want to say. Like, you know, there's suddenly five in a row, and then there's a gap of like three weeks of nothing. And, you know, I don't necessarily like it because, you know, I love being on the road and doing five concerts in a row, but then that three week uh, doing nothing I don't like. It's because, you know, I just sort of start going into a little bit of a depression, honestly. Like, it's just, oh, you know, there's nothing to do. <laughs>
<laughs> but practice for hours and hours. Yeah, but you know, we all need motivation. And you know, you practice only for a specific date. And mm. when there's no date kind of looming, you know, you just sort of go, <laughs> oh, I have time. <laughs> I'll get I'll get to it. Let me ask you about Chopin. You, uh, we're so pleased that you play a couple of uh, mm. mazurkas for us. You really seem to, to have a feeling for this. You've recorded all of the mazurkas. Yeah. I think the reason I have the feeling is mainly because, um, well, one of my first serious works that I've uh, played, uh, I was 10 years old, and it was a waltz by Chopin. And to me back then it was sort of something of uh, Mount Olympus. You know, mm. It really felt so hard and so complex in terms of not just technically, but also... I realized right away that there was such a, an emotional world behind it. And uh, I was drawn to it. I, I was always drawn to challenges, you know, not things that that are easy. And actually, in general, I choose my repertoire not... Sometimes it's actually a mistake, to be honest with you. I choose a repertoire that challenges me. Huh. Not necessarily... You know, there are some pieces that are extremely easy for me to play. And if I play them all my life, you know, I'll be, you know quite, you know, in good shape, but I don't like that. I like to have a challenge. So Chopin, at the end of the day, is a challenge. Well, let's hear this piece, Mazurka in A minor. This is from Opus 67, number four by Frederick Chopin. And uh, I just want to mention that some of these mazurkas, he'll be performing a mazurka with the Salt Lake Repertory Dance Theater while dancers are dancing. We'll talk about that collaboration in just a moment. But here is Mazurka in A minor, number four from Opus 67. Mazurka in A minor, opus 7, number 4, music by Frederick Chopin. When you're playing these and you're working with dancers, uh, how does that affect your performance or your interpretation? Well, it actually affects my performance greatly, in fact. So there are 10 mazurkas that they're dancing to. And uh, uh, 
you know, I, I play all, all of the mazurkas, but of course there are certain ones that are in my repertoire more than others. So out of the 10 that they dance, I want to say about five of them, I played a lot, a lot, a lot. And I got a tape from them to the tape that they were practicing to, and I realized the performances are so different. They're more square, not necessarily less beautiful, but they're mm -hmm. just more square. And uh, I, I found it quite difficult for myself to sort of redo my interpretation altogether. In a way, kind of strip my interpretation, just strip it to bare bones and come to the first rehearsal, which was yesterday, with a sort of fresh take on things and just sort of follow the choreography and uh, help them to uh, to establish their choreography. Actually, that's already established, so that's why. Um, it's kind of tricky, but I, I love the process. I, I've done this before, I've worked with choreographers before, and I think it's an interesting collaboration for a musician uh, because you're no longer... In, this, in the center of attention, so to speak, you know, you are actually accommodating uh, uh, this group of dancers, so it's fun. As you play the pieces, are you able to, to see the dancers? I, I don't, I mean, I see a little bit, so I have my cues and that I, I'm able to see. I don't really see the full picture, unfortunately. So I'm looking forward to, they said uh, that they're actually taping it, so I will I will be able to see it afterwards. <laughs> You'll finally be able to. Yeah. Oh, this collaboration with the Salt Lake Repertory Dance Theater, celebrating 50 years for them. So they wanted someone good. <laughs> so it's uh, they got someone. I have to ask about that. Uh, you have a great story about uh, playing a piano, and there was something very surprising about the piano when you were a very young man. Uh, that yeah. You just went in and, and had to play on whatever the instrument was. Yeah. Well, in general, you know, this is part of our profession, you know, uh, playing on different instruments, you know, all the time. And sometimes you don't have time to really adjust. So uh, in Russia, we, uh, with my teacher, we used to travel a lot. There were those evenings like um, a professor's evening. So basically all of her students got to play. Mm. And uh, we usually played at the small hall of the Moscow Conservatory. So it's quite prestigious and important event. So she used to do like run-throughs in smaller towns. Um, that one I would never forget because, well, we played on s all sorts of bad instruments. I mean, instruments that had like legs falling off and, and uh, I mean, <laughs> keys missing. Uh, one, one time we actually had a performance. We arrived very late and uh, the piano lid was closed, the, the, the lid that closes the keys, right? And... Um, the girl that was starting the concert go, goes out to try the piano to warm up and she opens the lid and there's no mechanism there there are no keys uh, so apparently <laughs> no the technician noticed. the technician took it home to kind of fix things uh -huh. but then well it's russia we're talking soviet union he probably got drunk and uh forgot to put it back in <laughs> so the concert was delayed by two hours we were waiting for the action to arrive uh my story however <laughs> revolves around the uh, so-called red piano. Uh, I was very young, and uh, uh, it, the, the town was Tula, I think, if I'm not mistaken. So we, we took a train. The train was delayed also, so we didn't really have time. We just arrived backstage, and basically the concert had to start. So the announcer went on stage and announced me. I was the first person at mm -hmm. that concert because I was the youngest. And um, I played a few short pieces, and I came out, and there it was. Uh, it's a, it's a brand. I don't think they make it anymore. It's a very Soviet thing. Uh, Red October. They came in different colors too. Uh, so there was a Red October that was black. Then there was a white one. Uh, there was a sort of midnight blue, and then there was red. So we got lucky. We had a red, red October. Like, I mean, we're talking about bright red, not like burgundy or anything, just pure red. And uh, I, I just, I lost it. I could not, I mean, I played so badly because I, I could not concentrate. The with, color was so bright. Color. And, you know, it was like the stage with big lights. So, like, it makes it even brighter. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I really, I remember feeling like the, the bull because, uh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> When when you spend your whole life practicing on pianos that are either black or like you know very nice brown, you know that's the color that doesn't irritate your eyesight. So suddenly there is something like that. I I mean, the reason I would never forget that is because I remember also playing so poorly and mm. was so upset because of that because that stupid thing just ruined my performance. <laughs>
<laughs> have to get special glasses for the for I the know. red piano. But you made it work, mostly. You... I, did. I I got through it, as they say. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> You've talked a little bit about performing being a lot more than just getting through and saying, "Okay, there were no wrong notes, so it must have been good." Mm. But there's something else. What are you looking for in your performance? You know, I actually was thinking about it recently. I, I never consider myself like this kind of pianist that is like a virtuoso pianist. You know, I mean, I I cannot play, for example, like I cannot play like the way Lang Lang plays, like super fast and super clean. Um, because I never actually, as, as I remember myself as a child, I never had that trajectory. You know, I always try to find something in the music that uh, I can... Uh, sort of deliver to the audience, mm -hmm. you know, the message that is in whatever piece I'm playing. And my thing, actually, it's a good and a bad thing, because I get so involved emotionally and uh, spiritually and just connecting to the, the piece, I sometimes actually forget that there's also the, you know, the, the virtuosic aspect. So um, to me, honestly, that's the most important thing. I as a as a listener, for example, I go to a lot of concerts, uh, you know, my friends and other other musicians. I'm never really fully satisfied emotionally if I go to a concert to hear like a very well taught musician who plays well, who plays, you know, clean and fast. Um, I come out of that concert kind of feeling empty. Hmm. I'm not saying anything against those kind of performers. You know, actually, as a matter of fact, they, they should be out there. Uh, but I just like personally, I don't feel a connection. I start thinking about my laundry or the fact that I forgot to pick up my dry cleaning. And, uh, you know, but performers that are not necessarily maybe the most accurate or the most virtuosic, but those people who, who come on stage, you know, we call them artists, you know, who deliver the message, they, uh, they kind of speak to the audience. That's that's something that's been my ambition, I guess. Okay. And I don't know whether I succeed in it or not, but that's my, I hate the word goal, but you know what I'm saying. I was saying. about to, to mention from the Schubert that you played just how cleanly those passages. <laughs> well, it was not. It had, it had a few wrong notes. <laughs> well, let's hear one of these mazurkas. We're okay. The first of two we're going to hear today. This is by Frederick Chopin. Mazurka in C-sharp minor. Uh, we're going to hear Opus 63, number three. This is live from our studio right now. Vasily Primakov also has recorded this on his album Chopin, 21 Mazurkas, and a larger two-CD set of Vasily Primakov, Chopin, 51 Mazurkas. Live from our performance studio at BYU Broadcasting, Vasily Primakov performing 
Frederick Chopin's Mazurka in C-sharp minor, Opus 63, number 3. Even though these are short, there is so much packaged into each one of them. I know, they're, they're incredibly uh, complex. Van Clyburn, when you competed, he said himself, after watching you perform La Valse, uh, prodigious technique, really wonderful, with a sheer look of rapture on his face. It seems like you really have to feel a piece, personally, to enjoy performing it. Yeah, yeah, that's that's one of the main factors, I think. Um, you know, and that's why earlier I was talking about the challenge. Sometimes I, t I take pieces that I f maybe at first I don't quite get. And I take on that journey to, to be able to understand that. Actually, Mazurkas is one of those journeys because I remember when I first uh, was asked to play Mazurkas, it was my teacher, Gornostaiva. Uh, she gave me uh, an opus of Mazurkas, and I kind of hit the dead wall. I really had no idea what to do with those pieces. And uh, it was a few years before I kind of came to realize what it was about for myself. I mean, obviously my teacher helped, but it was more of a personal journey. You know, you mentioned your te teacher, Vera Gornostaiva. Mm -hmm. You actually, I, I think this was perhaps even a surprise to her that you found some of her recordings that, she, that were of performances that she didn't even know they existed in the archives of Moscow Radio. And so, do you remember playing those for her? Mm -hmm. what, yes. Was, what was her reaction to hearing her own performance? It was just a very uh, moving moment, uh, I think, in, in both of our lives. Actually, I did surprise her because when Natalia and I, Natalia Lavrov is my partner in um, a small record label that we run, LP Classics, we, when we started the label, we kind of right away thought that we wanted to bring back some of the historical recordings from Russia, from the vaults of the archives. Mm. So I kind of uh, went and um, dug up those tapes of Gornostaiva. Those were live uh, concerts broadcast on were, the radio. Were these on quarter-inch tape reels or what happened? Reels, reels, mostly reels. So you may have uh, saved them just before they... Degraded. Well, I mean, I'm actually very grateful we do have this like huge archive in Moscow that I think is doing quite a good job trying to preserve all of those materials. So that's that's a plus. And they were actually very nice about collaborating with us. But she had no idea that those kind of were in existence. And Natalia and I first got the materials and we put together the first disc. And she said, well, when are you going to send it to her? I said, you know, honestly, let's let's master it. Let's let's get it in shape, and then I'll send it to her. And then, so basically, that's how it happened. I sent it to her, and then I called her. Uh, I said, well, I was in New York. She was in Moscow. I called her, and I said, hi, how are you? And, you know, we <laughs> chatted for a bit. And then I said, by the way, we're starting this series of uh, CDs where we're going to release your uh, recordings, live performances. And then there was this, like, silence. I think as a pianist, I, I know what went through her mind because, of course, one of the first things that goes, were they good performances? Like, <laughs> did I actually play all the notes? And, you know, things like that. So, and then shortly after, I traveled to Moscow and I spent a couple of weeks with her because I by then had already about eight to nine hours of music, her performances. And we just sat down and we, we listened because, of course, we wanted her input, like what she thinks is good, what, what is not. Uh, and yeah, I mean, she didn't know, for example, that there was a recording of her playing Mussorgsky pictures or Chopin fantasy. Mm. So it was uh, a revelation, especially because, for example, Mussorgsky pictures is a recording from 1959, and she's listening to it for the first time in 2012. And that's we're talking about wow. a major uh, moment in, in, in one's life and especially because by then she was what she was about 81, 82 and she stopped performing. She was at that time already concentrating only on teaching. So I think it was a very special thing for her. I mean, oh, she to, was, hear, to hear something from herself in her prime that she didn't even know had been yeah. recorded. That's quite a gift actually. Yeah. The fact that her, her work can now be heard outside of, uh, for years, she couldn't travel, we understand. And, and, and she, yeah. so she wasn't heard live anywhere else. Over 20 years, she was so-called blacklisted. You know, it was a Soviet thing. It's, it's many things, many aspects. Uh, so, you know, at the peak of her career, she did get invitations, but she never got to the West. So she played Soviet countries. She played, you know, in uh, 
Czech Republic and you know places like that. But mostly, of course, her career was in Soviet Union, and she played a lot of concerts, uh, and she had a huge following. So, but unfortunately, people, for example, here only knew her name as a teacher because her wonderful students were traveling everywhere and winning prizes and competitions. So, um, I. We were so determined to do this, to kind of shed light, not, you know, not that, you know, she's just a teacher, a great teacher, but she was also a great performer. What is it you hear in those recordings that you like, that you think others need to hear this? Well, it's a little bit personal for me, obviously, because mm -hmm. I studied with her for eight years. So I hear a lot of things that she taught us. Mostly, of course, it's the quality of sound that the piano has to sing, like when you play Chopin or Schubert. Uh, and uh, the way, you know, sort of the interpretation is structured, you know, phrasing and just the architecture of of the piece. Um, and I, I truly believe that, you know, her playing, for example, is, is it, it represents the best in Russian school. You know, it's... Uh, it's it's the you know same like as we're listening to Gilles and Richter. She was among them. I mean, she was actually very close with both. And uh, I'm not saying the playing is similar, but it's it's the same tradition of mm. Russian playing. So when you go to record today, when you know you have a recording date, how is recording different now than maybe it would have been? It sounded like they were just recording to have an archival copy back then. But what kind of mindset do you have when you go into a recording? to still get that live, that fiery, emotional connection? Um, over the years, I've learned one rule about the recordings. Uh, if you want to make a good recording and actually feel good about it, uh, you have to take chances. So I think, for me, I use a recording as a tool to basically, almost like a rehearsal, uh, to see what I can do with a piece. Because, you know, when you go on stage, I mean, you may take chances, but less so because, you know, there's this pressure of playing for the live audience and, you know, you sometimes being a little careful. In studio, you know, I feel that one needs to sort of go the distance and maybe sometimes do something crazy because you do have that <laughs> notion of you have another take. You know, it's not like, you know, there's one take and that's it. And... Uh, I am not a huge believer in just making a recording that is just really nice and, you know, careful. What's the point? You know, if you're recording, for example, a Beethoven sonata, there are millions of recordings out there of those pieces that are great. Mm -hmm. And if you're going into a recording studio to record that same Beethoven sonata, you might as well try to do something new with it. Like you, you have to deliver a new message. Otherwise, I, I don't, I wouldn't bother. Well, we've enjoyed your one-take performances here today very much. Vasily Primakov, excellent pianist. Your collaboration with the Repertory Dance Theater is what has brought you here, but we are so pleased that you would make time to play for our, our Highway 89 audience. It's my audience. pleasure. Thank you. There's information about Vasily's upcoming tours and projects all online at vasiliprimakov.net. Special thanks also to Joanne Rowland, the artistic liaison with the Gina Bachauer International Piano Competition for helping arrange today's performance. And congratulations to Salt Lake City's Repertory Dance Theater on 50 years of performance. If you're listening at home or just caught part of the show or you'd like to hear the first part again or share it, it's easy to do. All of our shows are archived online for free on-demand listening at byuradio.org slash highway89. Also, follow us on Twitter at BYUH89 for live show updates and special behind-the-scenes photos and video clips. Highway 89 is a production of BYU Broadcasting in Provo, Utah. Our recording engineer is Mark Waite. Our associate producer is student Abby Horlocker. And our producer is Jackie Tataishi. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. Thanks for listening. Thank you.